All right, what a way to start the service, huh? Well, let's take our Bibles, be turning to Psalm 139. It's so good to have each of you here with us tonight, and I appreciate each of you uh, coming. Uh, how about you young people on those back two rows over here? How about if you just stand up and move forward a little bit, all right? That'll help me an awful lot. I don't like preaching to empty pews. Thank you so much for cooperating with that, with a smile on your face. Uh, that is great. You notice I didn't ask the adults over there to move. <laughs> I, you will? Well, I, sure, I'd like for you to do so, all right? Okay, you come right ahead. She's not going to. That's fine, all right? She's glued to that spot in that pew. She's been there every time I've ever been to this church, and she doesn't, she doesn't move from that. That's her pew. I know not to come into church and sit on that one, I'll tell you that, all right? But uh, not teasing, all right? But uh, we're glad to have each of you here with us this evening. And I uh, had the opportunity to speak with the seniors uh, today. You've got a uh, fun group of seniors here at your church. And uh, you young people ought to hang out out with them a little bit every once in a while. And uh, you'll enjoy it. And uh, go over to Brother Gary's house. Man, he knows how to make dessert. And my wife was asking me about it. I was talking to her on the way back uh, to uh, Pastor Ling's house. I'm staying over at Pastor Ling's uh, house, not where he lives now, but where he formerly lived. And, uh, and so uh, I was talking to my wife, and she said, well, what was the dessert? And I said, well, I had strawberry pie. He had strawberry pie, and he had peach pie. And she said, well, you know, was it like uh, the uh, strawberry pie that your grandmother used to make? And I said, no. She says, was it like the strawberry pie that you could get at Shoney's, back in the days of Shoney's? And I said, no. Well, was it uh, strawberry pie like Mrs. Reese makes? And I said, no. And she says, well, what was it? I said, I've never had anything like it in my life. I don't know. But it was delicious. And so you get Brother Gary to make you guys some pies sometime and go over to his house and have a good time and watch that... uh, uh, fascinating uh, DVD that he's got over there about uh, creation, and uh, you'll you you would enjoy it and be fascinated. And um, just one scientist after another scientist after another scientist that is standing up and defending God's creation, that it came from the hand of God, and uh, and so you guys would be blessed in doing that. I, Brother Gary, I hope you didn't mind. I just invited the young people over to your house, okay? But. You can reverse it after I'm gone, okay? Just, just don't do it while I'm here, all right? But uh, it's good to have each of you here tonight. Thank you so much for uh, coming to be with us. Uh, tonight's message is a little different from our previous messages in that I want to, uh, tonight in this uh, message, I want to give you a little insight into the culture that we're seeking to reach for Christ today. If we're going to reach the people of our world today, the culture that we're living in today, we've got to have a little bit of an understanding of where they are at. And, uh, and you say, well, I know they're far removed from us. Well, that's true in a lot of ways. But you need to understand what's in their mind. And you need to understand how they're thinking. Because in order to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whatever age you would be living, you have to understand where the people are at. If you don't understand where the people are at, you don't even know how to begin in having a conversation with them. So tonight's message is going to uh, take on a, a little different twist uh, from the previous ones. I just want to give you a heads up before we're headed here today. I think most of you here tonight realize that we're living in a very corrupt and decaying culture. And instead of coming toward the light and coming toward God and coming toward uh, the Word of God, Uh, Many people in our uh, day and age have rejected the light. And when you reject the light, you go further and further into darkness. Now, I want you to understand two things before we even have our scripture reading tonight. Write these down if you've got something to to write with, if you would, please. Uh, Number one, I want you to understand that light rejected is light denied. Light rejected is light denied. Uh, Remember, God gives a certain amount of light to every individual that comes on the face of the earth. We saw that last night. Remember that? John 1, 9. And this is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That which may be known of God within. That witness within. So, first of all, I want you to understand that light 
denied or light rejected is light denied. Now you can put with that John chapter 3 and verse 19 where the Bible says this, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So you reject the light. That's a serious thing. You're denying the light. And then secondly, those who do not want to see eventually lose the capacity to see. Those who do not want to see, those who say no to the truth, they're walking away from it. Eventually, they come to the point in their lives that they lose the capacity to see. To see. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, put it down if you would please. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So you begin to lose light, don't you? And you can lose it to the extent that eventually you'll lose the capacity to see the light. Now, largely our society that we're living in today has become what we call a secular society. And we're just talking about in their mindset. They are secular in their mindset. They're secular in their thinking, if you would please. Uh, and, And what that means is simply this. God is not in their thoughts. Now, we think about God, don't we? And we have God in our lives. But they don't have God in their lives. And they don't think about God. I mean, how many folks do you see when you go to a restaurant, do you bow their head and actually thank God for their food? Well, there's some. And it's a blessing when you see them willing to do that. But by and large, the majority of people don't even bow their head and give thanks. You say, well, that's, you know, that's because some of them are timid and shy and embarrassed to pray in public. And perhaps that's true, but I think the vast majority, if we were, in their, if we were a little fly in their home watching them as they were getting ready to have their meal, they would just dive in and not give thanks to God. God's not in their what? Thoughts. He's just not in their thoughts. It's not a way of, uh, of thinking for them. They're functioning as though God is non-existent, non-existent. I'm not saying that we live in a total atheistic society because that would be untrue. That's not true. Only about 8% of Americans claim to be atheists and agnostics. But we are living in a society of people who are functioning as though God is non-existent. And one of the reasons for this is the indoctrination that they've received through our public schools concerning the issue of origins. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. You know, we are God-fearing people. And as God-fearing people, we take the Bible to be our final authority for faith and practice. Uh, Somewhere, I'm sure, Pastor Lang has covered that with you. It's probably in your church's constitution, although I have not read your church's constitution. But it's probably in your church's constitution. Berean Baptist Church is a body of local believers who take the Bible as our authority for faith and practice. What that statement simply means is we take the Bible to be the basis for what we believe in life. See, for faith. What establishes our faith? Is it our opinion? No. Is it, uh, is it our pastor? No. It's the what? It's the Word of God. So we believe that the Bible is the authority for our faith. Our faith is determined upon what the Word of God has to say. And we also believe that the Word of God is that which determines our practice. Our practice is dealing with how we live. Why do we live the way that we live? I don't know. I just come out to the church, and that's how everybody lives, and so therefore I'm part of the church, and that's what I do. Well, no, we do it because of the... Bible, because of the instruction we receive from the Word of God. We see, we believe as God-fearing people that the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. But the people in the world are far removed from that. People in the world are operating on the basis of philosophies and the wisdom of men. And that is their final authority. So when you reject God and His Word as your authority and you adopt the philosophies of men and the wisdom of men 
as your authority, things begin to go awry in your life. So the message tonight is a message to help you to understand better why the culture is where it's at today. And uh, I've titled it Origins, why it matters what we believe about where we came from. Now, having said all that, let's stand, if you would, please. Psalm 139, we're going to read two verses. If you're not able to stand, that's fine. But if you are, stand with me. We'll read two verses and then pray and let you be seated. In Psalm 139, in verses 13 and 14, the psalmist says this of the Lord. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Life really does begin at conception. I will praise thee, speaking of praising God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knoweth right well. Well, Father, we come before you tonight. We thank you for the privilege of being here with your people. And for everyone that's come tonight, Lord, I know that they've made a special effort to be here. It's a Tuesday night. It's chilly outside. We're getting close to Thanksgiving. People are busy. Uh, Lord, they've got work schedules to keep and all those things. And yet the folks that are here tonight have made a special effort to be here. And I appreciate that, and I believe that you do as well. And I pray that you'd bless them for that. I pray that the things that we see from the Word of God tonight will be an encouragement, will be a help, will be a blessing, will better prepare them, Lord, to be a witness in the culture that we're living in today. Help us in the message, I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with thy spirit, guide my steps, and direct my thoughts and my path. Lord, may this all honor and glorify thee, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Psalm 139 is a wonderful psalm that God gave through inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a man by the name of David. The psalm begins in verses 1 through 6. And just follow me, if you would, please. Maybe you want to jot some thoughts uh, about Psalm 139 down. Verses 1 through 6, the psalm begins by giving us a vivid description of what we call the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God is simply a characteristic of God. The technical word for that is attribute. It's an attribute of God. You ever heard uh, somebody talk about you know, the attributes of God? Well, that just means the characteristics of God. And uh, the idea of om- omniscience has reference to the fact that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. There's not anything that God does not know. God knows everything there is to know. And the things that you young people don't want your parents to know, God knows. He knows our thoughts, does He not? He knows our actions. And, uh, and God is, is so um, amazing that He knows, according to verse 2, when we sit down and when we stand up. Notice what it says. In verse 2 it says, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine what? Uprising. So the Lord knew when you stood for scripture reading just a little bit ago. He knew when you sat down. And I heard it too. Some of you thought, wow, I'm glad to be sitting down. You've had a long day at work. And the Lord knows when we sit down. The Lord knows when we rise up. Notice it goes on to say, he knows, he knoweth our what? I'm in verse 2. Our understanding. He understands our thoughts. Far what? Off. So God knows even our thoughts. That's a frightening thing, isn't it? Sometimes our thoughts are not really good thoughts. Sometimes my wife asks me, what are you thinking? (laughs) Oh, nothing. (laughs) I really don't want to confess what I was thinking. You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes we have really crazy thoughts. Really crazy thoughts that we think sometimes. I'm not saying they're evil thoughts. I'm not saying they're bad thoughts. I'm just saying they're crazy thoughts. You know, we think, think all kinds of, of crazy things. And yet God knows our thoughts. You see, God knows all things. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm about God. And so those first six verses are speaking to us about the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows all things. Verses 7 through 12 of the psalm go on to stress what is commonly referred to as the omnipresence of God. 
the omnipresence of God. Now, the idea of the omnipresence of God is the characteristic of God that enables Him to be everywhere present in the universe at the same time. Mm. God is God, isn't He? And God is omnipresent. God is everywhere present. Verse 7 Ask some piercing questions. Notice, if you would, please. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Okay, God, where can I go to get away from your spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? How can I get away from the presence of God? There was a man in the Bible who was seeking to run from God's presence. His name was Jonah. And what did he find out? There wasn't anywhere he could go that he could escape the presence of God. And notice what the Bible says. In the, in the, the, the scripture here asks that beautiful question. And in verse 8, the answer is, If I send up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea. You ever seen those uh, seabirds way out over the ocean and they just have their wings out like this and they're just riding the air currents? You ever seen birds do that? And uh, one time I was over at the uh, um, Atlantic Ocean and there was a guy there that had set up uh, a tripod and he had like a telescope and uh, I, you know, I was interested in knowing what he was doing, you know. So I asked him, what are you doing? He says, I'm watching the bods. I said, you're doing what? I'm watching the bods. <laughs> he had an accent. He was from some other country. He was watching the birds way out there that we couldn't see with the naked eye. And the birds are out there over the ocean, and they're just floating around in the ocean. Well, what if we could have our wings spread, and we could just go flying around? Could we escape the presence of God? No, because God is omnipresent. See, Psalm 139 is a great psalm. It's revealing to us God, the characteristics of God, and how that God is omniscience. He's all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. Coming to verses 13 and 14, we have a great manifestation of the omnipotence of God. When we talk about the omnipotence of God, we're talking about the fact that God is all-powerful. Is there anything that God cannot do? Well, yes. He can't lie because that goes against his holy character. Let me rephrase the question. Is there anything that limits God's power to perform? No. 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 God is all-powerful. All-powerful. The Bible says he, he spoke the world into existence. I mean, he just said it. There it was. And Jeremiah would give commentary on that. By his mighty power. His mighty power. God is all-powerful. A, a power that is so great, notice verse 13, where it says, Thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's what? Womb. Do you realize that God was involved in your birth? Your conception? God knew you when you were conceived of your parents. And when you were conceived of your parents, do you realize that, that originally at the time of your conception in your mother's womb, you were no bigger than a dot on top of an eye? That's how small you were when you were conceived. Wow. And yet, in that little dot that existed in your mother's womb, there was all the information needed to develop and determine the color of your skin, the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, whether or not you would be male or female. By the way, just for those who are out in our world today that are a little twisted on that, that's all there is. In that little dot, if you would please, the shape of our facial features were all there. Even our natural abilities were inbred. And, and all that we would become, both physically, mentally, were contained in that uh, 
seed form in that fertilized egg in our mother's womb. No wonder the psalmist goes on to say in verse 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. The human body is a, an amazing, I'm just going to express it like this, it may be a wrong expression, amazing piece of machinery. Well, we don't think of the body as being machinery, do we? But think about the body. You have 60 trillion cells in your body. 60 trillion cells. That's a lot. I can't even count that high. Can you? That's a lot of zeros behind that, isn't it? We have 100,000 miles of nerve fiber in our body. Wow. We have 60,000 miles of vessels carrying blood around in our body. Now, I'm glad that we have that. Because what did we see on Sunday night? The life of the flesh is in the what? Blood. So give me all those vessels, okay? Give me all those arteries. I want that blood flowing through my body, if you would please. We have 250 different bones in the body. To say nothing of our joints, our ligaments, and our muscles, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yet ours is a culture and a generation that largely rejects the creative hand of God. So tonight we're going to look at two major things in this message. Briefly, briefly, what does the Bible say about where we came from? We'll take a brief look at that here tonight. And then secondly, I want to give you three reasons why it matters what we believe about where we came from. So what does the Bible teach us about origins? Where, we, where did we come from? We came from God. Notice, if you would please, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. We're in Genesis chapter 2. We have the inspired record of God creating man and placing him here on the face of the earth. Now we're going to look in Genesis chapter 2. We'll go to Genesis chapter 1 a little bit later on. But right now we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. And as we go to Genesis chapter 2, I want you to notice what the Bible says here in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 7. The Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the, what? Dust of the ground. I'm in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and the Bible says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living, what? Soul. It's interesting as you read this verse that God formed man of the dust of the ground. There came a time in history past where God himself apparently knelt down and formed a body out of the dust of the ground. He eventually would breathe into the nostrils of that body that he had formed the breath of what? Life. Who gave life to that body? It was God. It was God. And so God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Now, it's an interesting thing that the dust of the ground is made of 13 elements. And the same 13 elements that are found in the dust of the ground are the same 13 elements that are found in the human body. Coincidence? Accident. Exactly what God said. He formed man of the dust of the ground. God said he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, Hold your finger here in Genesis chapter 2 and go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Hold your finger in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to come right back there, but go with me to Acts chapter 17. I think you would be wise and you would do well to cross-reference this in your Bible. Do you know what I mean by cross-referencing? Over in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, you find a little slot out beside that verse and put the verse Acts 17.28, if you would please. Acts 17.28. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, notice what it says. For in Him, in God, we, what? Live. Have you found it? Acts 17. Acts 17. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. All right? Acts chapter 17. Look with me in verse 28. For in him we what? Live and move and have our being. As certain also of our own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Also, verse 25. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all. Look at it now. Circle it. What's he give us? Life. And what? Circle it. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us what? All things. When did that take place? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So out beside Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, put that reference down in your Bibles, if you would please. Because it's just reinforcing the fact that we came and we are here by the mighty hand of God. God is the one who created us. He breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. And the Bible says man became a living soul. That's what separates us from every other creature that's ever been created. Dogs may be man's best friend, but dogs do not have a living soul. Cats do not have a living soul. I hate to disappoint you, but your cat's not going to be in heaven with you. Neither is your dog, nor your horse. They're not going to be there. They do not have living souls. It is only human beings that have living souls. Remember, God is the one who breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. Man is the most unique creature on the face of the earth. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Look over in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, fifth book of your Bible, if you would please. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're not talking about the final end of man. We're talking about the beginning of man. How did man come to be? And there was a time in history past when God formed a body of the dust of the ground. He breathed into the nostrils of that body that he formed the breath of life and man became a living soul. We have the first man on the face of the earth. His name was Adam. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, notice in verse 32, if you would please. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 32, the Bible says this, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth. Would you underline that expression in your Bibles, please? The day that God created man upon the earth. Would you say that with me? We're starting with the, word, the, the words the day. The day that God created man upon the earth. Now, I know it's a little chilly outside, but you can do a little better than that. The day that God created man upon the earth. How did man get here? We got here by God. We won't turn there tonight because we looked at it last night. But you might want to write down the reference anyhow. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 12, where God says, I made the earth and created man upon it. I made the earth and created man upon it. And in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18, the Bible says that God created the earth to be inhabited. And so God put us here on this earth. Now, we don't think that the creative act of God was just recorded for us in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament as well. Let's look at a couple of verses, uh, if you would please. Uh, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I'll be turning to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4. You can also put in your notes tonight, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We'll not turn there tonight. We looked at it last night. In the beginning was the Word. Remember, the Word was in the capitalized. It's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. All things. All things. All of us. Every individual that's ever walked the face of the earth, made by God. Made by God. And in the book of Acts, in Acts 
chapter 4, look in verse 24. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 24, notice what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God. Lord, Thou art God. Lord, Thou art God, which has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. Where do we come from? We came from God. He's our creator. He's, a, he's our maker. If it weren't for God, we wouldn't be here. One last verse and then we'll move on. The book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. The book of Revelation, last book of your Bible. Revelation chapter 4. As we look here in Revelation chapter 4, I want you to look down with me, if you would please, in verse 11. In Revelation chapter 4, in verse 11... We've got a great worship scene taking place up in heaven. The Apostle John sees it. He sees this massive worship scene taking place up in heaven. We'll begin in verse 9 just to get the flow of what's taking place. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. So it speaks about the the living creatures, the, the beast, if you would please, giving glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's sitting upon his throne, who's going to be there forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and they worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, now look what they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive what? Glory. And what? Honor. And what? Power. Why is he worthy? For thou hast created all things. For thy pleasure they are and were created. So I just want you to see tonight a number of verses that are pointing out the fact that man is here on the face of the earth as a result of the creative hand of God. Where do we come from? How did we get here? The answer is God. God. He put us here. He put us here. Now why does that matter? Why is it important to understand and to believe that we came from God? That we're here as a result of the creative hand of God, rather than being here as a result of time and chance, evolutionary thought and theory. And the primary answer to all this is that a person's view of where he comes from has a decisive impact upon three different areas in his life. Three key areas of his life, if you would please. And this is what I want you to understand. I want you to understand that we're living in a culture that largely has set God aside, that do not understand or believe that they are here as a result of the creative hand of God. They've swallowed the the lie of the devil, of the evolutionary thought, if you would please, And as a result, it's having an impact upon their lives in three different ways. Keep in mind what I shared with you earlier here tonight. First of all, what a person believes about where he came from has a direct bearing on what he thinks about himself. What you believe about where you came from has a direct bearing about what you think about yourself. I'm not trying to be ugly, and I'm not trying to be mean, and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. And I'm not trying to put down the people in the world today. So please don't take it as such. But have you noticed that much of today's generation doesn't think too highly of itself? You see that in how uh, the culture is dressing. You see it in the body piercings that are taking place. You see it in the excessive tattoos that people are wearing. You see it in the multicolored hair that uh, people have as you are out and about. You see it in the black gothic style dress of many people. Uh, You see it with the shredded up shotgun uh, jeans that you wonder why in the world would somebody pay 60 bucks for a pair of jeans that's already worn out. 
and they think it's in fashion and it's in vogue. You know what I'm saying? You, you know what I'm saying here tonight? I'm not trying to be critical, and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited toward those folks at all. Remember, light rejected is light denied. And those who do not want to see eventually lose the capacity to see. Why do we have so many in our world today accepting all these things? I mean, it's a resemblance, to be honest with you, it's a resemblance of a society going into paganism. It is not a society going forward, it is a society going in reverse. The natives are the ones that used to have the bones through their nose. Right? Now it's people in Main Street America. May not necessarily be a bone, but you know what I'm talking about. And it's a reflection of the fact that they've gone away from the light. They've rejected the light. They're going further and further into darkness. Our society is becoming more and more paganistic by the day. And it's because they have a wrong view of God. And because you have a wrong view of God, you have a wrong view about yourself. You don't really have a... Uh, you don't really think real highly of yourself. I'll just put it that way. And I'm not saying here tonight that God doesn't love those people. And, and God's not concerned with those people because he loves those people. God loves the world. And God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't love us any more or any better because we look the way we look versus how they look. God loves us all on equal plane, if you would please. And God's concerned about those people. God cares about those people. And those are the people that God has has placed us in the world for such a time as this, to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ. So church, when you begin to get some of those people coming inside the church, you shouldn't look at them cross-eyed and wonder, what are they doing here? You ought to be glad they're here. Because they've come to a place where they can hear the truth. And it is the truth that sets men free. What I'm saying is that what what gives us value? What gives us worth and what gives us dignity in life as individuals? It's knowing we were created in the image of God. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, please. Genesis chapter 1. What gives me worth? What gives me value? What gives me importance in life? Has nothing to do with my accomplishments in life. It has nothing to do with my education in life. It has nothing to do with the amount of degrees that I have behind my name. It has nothing to do with what I possess in life. What gives me worth and value and dignity is the fact that I was created in the image of God. And God does not make junk. And every individual is valuable and important to God. You want to sing Jesus loves the little children. He loves the little children. All the children of the world. He loves all the people of the world. And in Genesis chapter 1, look in your Bibles, if you would please. In verse 26, the Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Notice he's speaking in a pluralistic sense, isn't he? So it appears as though he's having a conversation among the Godhead. One God manifest in three persons, yet one God. And that one God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our what? Image. After our what? likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth so God created man in his own image my friend we've been made in the image of God you are valuable you are important you're God's creation you're God's creation In the image of God created him, male and female, created him alone, regardless of your little joke there about your wife today. Brother said, my wife and I have a 50-50 agreement. 
He said, she tells me what to do, and I do it. <laughs> it's dangerous when you have amens for crazy things in church, isn't it? God made us male and female. I could say some things about gender identity, but I'll, I'll, I'll just refrain. They tell us today that there are over a hundred recognized different genders. There's two. There's two. Male and female. Male and female. Male and female. So when people begin to walk away from the truth, which is what a, a large portion of our culture today is doing, that's why our world is in the mess that it's in. It's not because you know, of the Democrats or the Republicans, you know, politicians and all, corrupt politicians and all that stuff. The world is in the position and condition that is in today because the world, by and large, is walking in darkness. They've walked away from the truth. And my friend, when that happens, people begin to develop a wrong view of themselves. And we see it all around us. All around us, we see it. Number two, when you have a wrong view of where you came from, your moral compass in life gets all messed up. You have a wrong view of where you came from, your moral compass in life gets all messed up. You see, if there's no God that has made us, then you can say there's no rights and wrongs in life. There's no standard of righteousness. And if there's no standard of righteousness, then you can live however you want to live. Hmm. And isn't that how a large portion of our culture today is living? Don't tell me that's wrong. You have no right to tell me that that's wrong. I can do what I want to do. You see, they've rejected the authority of God in their lives, have they not? And they're just determined that they're going to live however they want to live because they don't believe that there's a standard of righteousness. They don't believe there's rights and wrongs. They just are guided by... As Pastor Lang pointed out, I guess it was on Sunday, he said, we're living in a culture similar to the book of Judges. And the key thought in the book of Judges, key phrase in the book of Judges, is that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. He becomes his own authority. I'm going to do what I want to do, and you don't tell me otherwise. And so their moral compass gets all messed up. All messed up. And that's why we see the culture behaving the way the culture is behaving. You talk about abortion. I've got a right to have an abortion if I want to. Why? Because you have a wrong view of where you came from. You have a wrong view of that, that baby within your body, if you would please. It's only a fetus. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, no. It's a human being made in the image of God. Well, I can live with someone without getting married, and don't give me a hard time about it. Besides, look at all the other people that are doing it in the world. You see, when you walk away from the reality of God, the existence of God, how do you begin to think? As though there is no God. You begin to adopt a secular mindset, so you begin to accept things like abortion, you begin to accept things like living together without uh, being married. And, um, and, and, and church, you have, to, you have to face these issues. People will walk in the doors of the church and, and, uh, and you'll think, man, you know, here's a couple that's visiting our church and, and uh, you don't know anything about them, they don't know anything about you, but they sort of enjoy the church, they come back and people start uh, uh, getting to know them, they get to know the people, and they come up to Pastor Lang, and they want to join the church, and Pastor Lang finds out that they're not married. They're just living together. So to Pastor Lang, and Pastor Lang knows that, and, and in good conscience, can he allow them to join the church? They're welcome to attend. They're welcome to attend all the services, aren't they? But can they join the church as members? Why? Why not? Because they're not allowing the Word of God to be the authority for their practice. Correct? 
So Pastor Lang says, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about getting married. And you get married, then we can think about joining the church. But more times than not, when that happens, from my own personal experience of pastoring for 38 years, they get offended and they leave. I'm just saying that when you begin to adopt this secular mindset that's out in the world today, it begins to mess up your moral compass. You, you begin to think things that aren't, aren't right. Uh, young people especially get uh, taken up with this, if you would please. And, um, you know, they, 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 they say, well, you know, what's wrong with a little immorality as a teenager? You know, life only comes around once. And why shouldn't I enjoy a little pleasure? May I remind you, teenagers, that Hebrews 11.25 says that there's pleasure in sin only for a season. Only for a season. Only for a season. And when that season is over, the guilt that you will experience, the shame that you will have, the heartache that will come to your life, the scars that you will have to live with for the rest of your life are not worth it. Uh, not too long ago, I was speaking to the young people at our church, and we were just having a little powwow. You ever have a little powwow with the young people at your church? You know what I'm talking about? We just have a little conversation and just sharing my heart with the young people. And I said, you know, some of you are struggling. And we're talking about good young people. In good homes. But they look at uh, the young people out in the world and they say, well, they get to do that and I don't get to do it. And they have this and that and I don't have it. And they begin to think that, you know, the people out in the world, all these teenagers in the world, they, they've got about 3,000 friends. And they're thinking, I've got three. You know what I'm saying? So they begin to think in their mind, they, they begin to feel sorry for themselves. And without even realizing it, without even knowing it, their heart begins to grow envious of the wicked. And if we adults aren't careful, we'll do the same thing. In Psalm 37, let's turn there and look at a couple of verses in Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, look with me, if you would please, at a couple of verses. In Psalm 37, the Bible says this. In Psalm 37, look down in verse 1. In Psalm 37, in verse 1, I shared with our young people, I said, you know, uh, you're, you're thinking, you're going to go to college, man, when you go to college, you're going to have all these college friends, and you're going to have friends for the rest of your life. And I said, um, you know how many of my friends and I stay in contact with when I went to college? We have a new youth pastor at our church. And he was there when I was having this little powwow with the young people. So I asked him. I said, uh, I said, Pastor, I said, how many? And he's younger than me. Okay. So when you get to be older, teenagers don't listen to you as much. Yeah. So I was asking him, Pastor Glover, he's younger. I said, uh, how many of your friends from college do you have, still have contact with? Be careful about what you allow your mind to think and your affections to desire. And your appetites to gravitate toward. Jerem, uh, Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Why should we envy what the, the evil that's out in the world? Not this past summer, but the previous summer. I had the privilege of serving as an interim pastor in Nashville. And... Um, my wife and I uh, were there, and we lived there for 11 weeks. And as we served as an interim pastor there, as I served as the interim pastor, 
our youngest son came to see us uh, one weekend. Brad's wife, and little boy. And, uh, and so he wanted to see downtown Nashville. I'd never been to now, downtown Nashville on Saturday. And uh, we got down to downtown Nashville. And, oh, my. I said, we got to get out of this place now. Now, there was some place down there that sold homemade ice cream. I don't know. It was in the midst of all this corruption that was going on. And, uh, and my son said, uh, Dad, Dad, let's, let's get this ice cream. I said, Son, we're not getting this ice cream. We're out of here. I don't have any business being here. You don't have any business being here. My grandson over here has no business being here. None of us have any business being here. We're, forget the ice cream. Don't grow envious of the workers of iniquity. And notice what verse 2 says. For they shall soon be cut down like the, and wither as the green. What's going to happen to them? Be consumed. Consumed in the cesspool of sin. What I'm trying to get across to you here tonight is that basically people with the wrong view of where they came from want to believe that they're free to live however they want to live and make life's choices on their own that no one has any right to tell them that they're right or to tell them that they are, are wrong. Does that sound familiar? You see, as man's concept of deity degenerates, his morals degenerate. And that's where our society is at. Their view of God has degenerated. So the morals of the world have degenerated. If your God is on the level of a reptile, then you can live however you want to live. But if he is a holy, righteous, just God of whom you are made in his image, and he is implanted that conscious inside of you, then you realize what the Bible says. I'm accountable to him. I'm accountable to that God for how I live. I look over in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Let me pick up speed here because I don't want to be lengthy tonight. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, we read this verse last night but didn't put a lot of emphasis upon it. And I want you to see it again tonight. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Then also write down for your note's sake, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, will not turn there. But Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, it says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in, in what? Righteousness. Do you understand that when God judges this world and all the people of this world, he's going to be right in his judgment? He's going to judge according to righteousness? Now, let's be honest. Sometimes we judge people. But our judgment is not always righteous. We can make a judgment and be dead wrong. But God's going to be perfectly right in what he does. He knows all things. Does he not? And he's going to judge in righteousness. The Bible says, By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he raised him from the dead. In other words, Jesus Christ is going to be the judge of this earth. Lastly, number three, and perhaps the most important aspect of a person who has a wrong view of God and where he came from, thinks that he has no accountability to God. He thinks he has no accountability to God. Why does the society march down the street parading its immorality, parading its nakedness, parading its, its hatred of God, and all those things because they don't believe for a heartbeat that they are accountable to God? They just don't believe it. That idea is not in their thoughts. It is not in their thinking. And so we have a society today that they don't view that they're accountable to God. Therefore, they do not prepare for life beyond the grave. 
How many people today believe the grave is it? When I die, that's it. It's, it's over with. And that's why we have masses in America who have no concern for their soul. Have you ever gone with Pastor Lang out on visitation? If you haven't, I recommend that you do. Okay? And you go and you knock on a door. Somebody comes to the door and, Hi, I'm Pastor Lang from uh, Brian Baptist Church. And this is Justin. He's here with me today. And, and I'm one of the guys at the church. And we're just out visiting for our church and inviting folks to come and, and visit us. We'd love to have you. And we're over on Marlin. Is it Marlin? We're on Marlin Road. Okay, we're on Marlin Road. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen our buildings, but it's real easy to get there. And our people are friendly, and we'd love to have you. And here's the times of the services, and, uh, and we'd love for you to come. So he talks about the church a little bit. And, uh, and, and then he turns the conversation towards spiritual things. And all of a sudden, the person says, I'm good. I'm good. You know what they're saying? I have no concern for my soul. I have no concern about what's going to happen to me after I die. Yet according to the Bible, every individual, one of these days, is going to stand before God. Either as a person who has had his sins forgiven to be allowed into heaven for all of eternity. Or a person who stands before God whose sins have never been forgiven to be cast into an everlasting lake of fire. Now I want to say three things about forgiveness and then we'll be done here tonight. The first thing I want to say about forgiveness is that it's not anything that we earn from God. Look over in Ephesians chapter 1 if you would please. Ephesians chapter 1. It's not anything we earn from God. You say, well, Brother Chris, we, we know this. Well, hear it again. I used to have a professor in Bible college who would say repetition is theological mucilage. I didn't know what that meant, but I figured I better just listen to what he had to say. Repetition is theological mucilage. I didn't know it at the time, but mucilage is a form of glue. And so he says repetition will make it stick. We need some truths from the Word of God to stick so that we are able to repeat them to the world that we're called to be a witness to. So forgiveness is not anything we earn. It's given to us by God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 1, look down your Bibles if you would please. In verse 7 it says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His what? Grace. So forgiveness is not anything that we earn. Forgiveness is not anything that we merit. Forgiveness is not anything that we uh, deserve. Forgiveness is not something that, that we get because we promise God we're going to live right or we, we join a church or we get baptized or we live a good life and do good works and good deeds. Forgiveness is given to us on the basis of God's kindness and God's kindness to lost sinners alone. That's grace. Grace is the love and kindness of God toward those who don't deserve it. Getting something we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. Number two, when, it comes, when we receive forgiveness, it comes through the merits of Christ. It's not through our merits, it's through Christ's merits. Now listen to me very carefully, and I want you to get something. Take your Bibles, be turning to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5. But I want you to listen to something, and I want you to get it. You say, Brother Chris, you have a way of just sort of... Uh, uh, discerning things and putting things in a very explicit way. And here's something that needs to be put in an explicit way. When you and I forgive someone, what do we do? We release them of the debt that we think they owe us because of what they did wrong. Cassie was unkind to me. She feels guilty about that. So she comes to me and says, Brother Chris, I said something unkind about you. Would you forgive me? No. What would I say? Yes. And forgiving her, I would release her of whatever I think that she owes me. 
as a result of what she did against me. Right? Isn't that how we forgive? God doesn't forgive that way. God doesn't forgive that way. God forgives because the debt has been satisfied. See, we release people of the debt. God doesn't release us of the debt. He sent his son to pay it. And God's forgiveness is on the basis of the fact that the debt has been paid. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what's those last words? Christ died for us. Why are we going to heaven when we die? Why do we have the forgiveness of sins? Because there's someone who paid our sin debt. And he paid it in full. The third thing I want to say about forgiveness is this. To be forgiven, we must believe on Jesus Christ for it. We must believe on Jesus Christ for it. Look over in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, I want you to look down with me in verses 38 and 39. The book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13, look in verses 38 and 39. The Bible says this, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, in the context the man is talking about Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of what? Sins. So if we want forgiveness of sins in the sight of a holy God, where would he have to go to find it? We've got to go to Jesus. We've got to go to Jesus. We've got to go to Jesus because through this man, because he paid your sin debt, was buried and then rose again the third day, he can bring you forgiveness. And the Bible goes on to say in the next verse, and by him all that believe. So how do we receive the forgiveness of sin? By believing. By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. All that believe are justified. Now justification is a legal term that means to be declared righteous. Or let me put it like this. When you come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. I can't earn your forgiveness. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I understand the only way I can have your forgiveness is because Jesus Christ paid my sin debt. And he paid it in full. And I'm believing on Jesus to forgive me and to give me a home in heaven. The Bible says we're justified from how many things? All things. You know what that means? That means we're clean slated. God wipes the slate clean. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. We stand before God as a forgiven person. The verse goes on to say we're justified from all things from which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, here tonight, I hope you, that you understand that the issue of origins is a key and important issue in reaching our current generation for Christ. Understand that the people of the world do not always view things as we view them. That should be obvious, right? That should be obvious. Thus, we sort of have to back up at times. And we have to start from a different approach Many times in what we take, we have to begin to ask questions like, do you believe in the reality of God? Do you believe God's real? Do you believe that God is? Do you understand that when God made man and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, that there's a part of you that is never going to die? Do you understand that? The body's going to go to the grave, but the soul and the spirit's going to go on for all of eternity. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Do you see yourself as accountable to God for your actions? Or do you feel like you can just sort of live however you want to live? If you were to die and stand before God today, would you stand there as a person who has been forgiven of your sins? Or as a person who needs to be forgiven. By that time, it's too late because it's appointed on one's demand to die and then the judgment. So I'm just trying to share with you some things tonight to help you understand a little bit better 
the culture that we're trying to reach today. They're different. We have to approach them differently. We have to find out where they're at. A few weeks ago, my wife and a couple of teenagers were out soul winning together. And there was a, a man that let them carry on a conversation, go through the whole gospel presentation. And it wasn't until they had gone through the whole gospel presentation and continued to talk to this man that it came out that he didn't even believe that there was a heaven or a hell. We have to ask questions. We have to find out where people are at. And then we can address their need. I pray that the Lord will use something that we shared tonight to be a help to you. Father, I thank you. Thank you so much for being the God that you are to us.